Okay, now time for questions. Time for questions on Genesis 10. First question. You say that if somebody believes that there were men before Adam and Eve, those people could not be saved. Okay. If people existed before Adam and Eve, even if they were partially human, like ape men, hominids, then they could not be saved. Yes. Salvation, according to the Bible, is only related to Adam and Christ. Not anyone outside of Adam or outside of Christ. Death from Adam and life in Christ. So, there are many, many grave implications if we reject this paradigm of Adam and Christ. We can't do that. And another place to see this paradigm is Romans 5, 5, 12 to 21. Right. We didn't consult it earlier because it was a longer passage, but what 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22 says in two verses or two sentences, Romans 5, 12 to 21 says in a more lengthy discussion. That's important, yes. So, do not compromise on the creation account. Do not compromise on the existence of Adam and Eve and even our existence coming from them through Noah's sons. Okay, next in the back, far back. Uh, two things. Um, and I'm sorry if I missed this. I'm sure you covered it. But uh, as it relates to the, uh, the multitude of languages, what about Babel? What about the Babel uh, instance where God uh, confused the languages and they all dispersed according to their various like languages? How does that fit? Or, or did I misunderstand you when you said the languages, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, what is the relationship of this chapter to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11? Well, to your statement concerning the different languages that were created and the disbursement of the people according to those different languages. I mean, that all started at Babel, yes? It started at Babel. Okay. Chapter 10 explains what happened. It explains the reality of the multiplication of languages. Verse 5, everyone according to his language. And verse 20, according to their languages. And verse 31, according to their languages. Yeah. And then the reason for many languages has to do with the Tower of Babel, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Okay. So you were just uh, reiterating that when you made the statement? Yes, that's all I was saying. Oh, I'm sorry. But second question, real quick. Uh, as it relates to Philistines, First uh, Samuel seventeen three, and the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And of course, this is the account where David fought Goliath. Um, Philistines. Did I hear you correct? Did, did you say that you don't believe there was a people called the Philistines? Is that what you said? No, no, I didn't say that there weren't people called Philistines. You referenced 1 Samuel 17, 1, about the Philistines and Israel fighting in the time of David and Goliath. Now, no, I didn't say there were no Philistines. I said the Philistines that existed in this time period, in the biblical times, they do not exist today. And if they don't exist today, we should not use a word to identify them. Like the, the label or the land of Palestine comes from the word Philistine. So since the Philistines don't exist today, why should we use the word Palestine? Because it's based on their name, the Philistines. Yeah. And I'm not trying That's, to support the, the, uh, with that name. I'm just saying, aren't, aren't there many names that were created and established centuries ago um, that are still acknowledged today? I mean, uh, I understand what you're saying. We shouldn't take anything away from the land of Israel, the people of God. That's their land. And I see what you're saying. Anything that disassociates them with it, and I think that's the intention, right? The Romans are trying to disassociate the land. Yes. The Romans are, were trying to, and even today, um, the PLO, they are trying to disassociate the Jews and Israel from that land, gotcha. from that territory. That's what they're trying to do. Yeah, I'm sorry for misunderstanding. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And then in reference to making sure we have correct terminology, this is what happens all the time. 
it happens through every generation, you have to establish correct terminology. If we don't establish correct terminology, not only the actual terms, but the meanings, the right meanings of those terms, if we don't do that in every generation, and in every conversation, in fact, if, in every con if we don't do that, we will not understand the real issues. We will not describe the real issues, and we won't be able to handle the issues as they need to be handled. We have to establish terminologies. So you yeah. would think that the word Semitism and Semitic is a design by those that hate the Jews to distract from their actual uh, name and, and heritage? I don't know the origin of that in reference to the Jewish controversy, the name Semitic, mm -hmm. and whether it was invented to kind of distract and generalize the, mm -hmm. the issue. I don't know that part. It kind of makes sense though, doesn't it? But in order to avoid that misunderstanding, yes. why not say it's anti-Hebrewism or anti-Jewishism or something? Right. Yes, brother. Call it that, because that's precisely what it is. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yes. Uh, you said uh, the Canaanites, basically the Jebusites, Amorites, Jebusites, they, they, they don't exist today. Correct. Okay. Yes. Yes, I said that the Canaanite peoples of chapter 10, verses 15 to 20, I said that they don't exist today. There's no evidence that they exist. Yeah. They were mostly obliterated in the time of Joshua, but not entirely, but over the years, they are no more. Yeah. And that uh, has some relation to prophecy, things that God commanded or that were prophesied, they're like the Amalekites. They were uh, commanded to be stamped out. Well, does it have to do with prophecy, well, like with the Amalekites, that they should be stamped out? Yes. Well, in relation to the Amalekites, they were the first nation to attack Israel in the wilderness, and God promised, first in Exodus 17, that's when it happened, and then God promised that one day they will utterly be blotted out from under heaven, which started to take place in the time of King Saul, 1 Samuel 15. He defeated that nation, and then Samuel executed the king because Saul refused to do so. So in reference to prophecy, eventually it happened with the Amalekites, and that's what happened with the Canaanites. Yes? Uh, I think it was an excellent thing what you did in making sure we connected the dots of Genesis 10 with creation, the, all the information before, and then the implications about who Christ is, um, and so on, or what is sin, what is the condition of man, and so on. So, um, it seems to me, uh, I call it uh, smoke grenade hermeneutics, where, you know, we're taking fire because of things we believe in, so we throw a smoke grenade and say, well, it's not all that clear, so that we don't get shot anymore. And so, there's people like, for instance, uh, Tim Keller says we have to accept Genesis 1 as myth, and then also says he, he believes in a, in a messy version of creation where he doesn't actually believe that Adam and Eve were real people, uh, especially created by God. Then also says uh, there's probably four to six, he said four to six orthodox readings of Genesis, uh, the early chapters of Genesis. Um, and so when we, when we say those things, if you press him, he said, well, I believe that you know, Adam, the Adam-Christ parallel uh, there in, in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, absolutely believe in that. But then, basically makes everything else a great big uh, follow-up. Um, what's your, what's your uh, thought on that, and how do we as, as pastors or as uh, fellow church members bring some clarity to that kind of language where we're just trying to say don't don't persecute me because I believe in you know okay to rephrase your question yeah. you're saying that there are people like Tim Keller who throw confusion into the mix and say it's unclear and then they assert some some things about it and they go in the wrong direction so how to deal with all of that well firstly to use Tim Keller as an example 
And, and he is a very popular and pernicious example. He has influenced so many people. That in, in the case of Tim Keller, he, he does say, like you said, that Genesis 1 is figurative. And then he also says Genesis 2 is literal. He actually does that in the same article that he posted on the website BioLogos. BioLogos website, he has said that in his article. Genesis 1 is figurative, Genesis 2 is literal. But after saying Genesis 2 is literal, he doesn't think Adam and Eve were created in the way Genesis 2 describes. He is the one, I was alluding to him actually, but what he says is what others also say, that there were groups of animal, uh, half-animal, half-human creatures, hominids, Neanderthals, cavemen, apemen, different wor words to describe these groups. There were many groups out there, and God took a male from one, and he took a female from another, and he brought them together, and then gave them the image of God, and voila, we have Adam and Eve. That's Adam and Eve, to him. He says that in that article. Adam and Eve come from the, that source. Now, he kinds of, kind of uh, takes a softball approach. Says, you know, we should consider this, but he gives it attention. And he also cites Derek Kidner, another commentator, uh, Derek Kidner, to prove that and to say Derek Kidner actually was the first one that I can think of or that he researched to, to cite him. That's what he says. Derek Kidner says this, and I kind of like it. You know, uh, so this is a, a good proposal. So, but he doesn't say this is the way it happened. Right. He doesn't say that because he, he's into obfuscation. He's into uh, uh, muddying the waters. That's the way he is. Now, the hypocrisy is quite evident. For one, Genesis 1 does not read like poetry or, uh, or figurative language. That's number one. Number two, how did he determine that Genesis 1 is poetic and therefore figurative, and Genesis 2 is narrative and therefore historical? How did he determine that? that? He can't determine that. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's just asserting it. He is like, he's a Presbyterian Pope. That's what he is. He's just making assertions that this is the way it is without proving it. Then... Uh, you're asking how to deal with it. I'm, I'm giving answers. This is how I would deal with it. If somebody is open-minded enough, they claim to be tolerant and open-minded and free-thinking, okay, well then listen to this explanation and see if your arguments will stand the test of truth and accuracy in re reference to biblical evidence. Mm -hmm. So this is the way I would handle it. You don't have any justification to make this distinction between chapters 1 and 2. Then... After you have made this distinction and you yourself have said Genesis 2 is literal, then you propose the creation of Adam and Eve in direct contradiction to chapter 2. Because chapter 2 says Adam was created from the ground and Eve was created from Adam's side. But you don't believe that. So how can you say Genesis 2 is literal? Oh, it's literal. His answer might be it's literal, but not that part. Okay, then you're picking and choosing. You're doing what you want. You're playing fast and loose with the text of Scripture. Okay. Then when he says there are four to six orthodox views or interpretations of the creation account, well, who said four to six? How did he determine that? How did he pontificate and say that there are four to six orthodox views? Because anyone who claims to have orthodox views in the history, whether it's in the patristic era or in the reformational era, or even for 300 years in his own theological tradition, the Reformed Presbyterian tradition, from the 1500s to the 1800s, for 300 years, from about 1550 to 1850, until Darwin and Marx, until, and who? Warfield. And Warfield, yes, in, in, among the Presbyterians. Warfield and Charles Hodge, until that time, what did the, even the Reformed tradition say? They said, there is only one orthodox position, there is only one biblical position, there is only one scriptural position, and that is the position that I had uh, preached earlier, but that is, Genesis is literal. It's literal, 
And God created everything in six regular days, six normal consecutive days. And he did so about 6,000 years ago, about 4,000 BC. This is the Reformed, this is the Orthodox, this is the historic Christian position on Genesis and creation. So he can't say in the year 19 uh, or uh, 2015 or so, he cannot say there are four to six Orthodox positions. Right. But I think that's like saying this is, this is definitely one of those things where people want to say we can agree to disagree, it's not a vital issue. Okay. Now he says we can agree to disagree. And he says that it's unclear about this and unclear about that. But he's quite clear that Genesis 1 is poetic and Genesis 2 is literal. He makes that assertion in the article. So how did he determine what is clear and what's unclear? Right. How did he determine that? He's saying it's all unclear, but really it's not all unclear. And in fact, if anyone were to be in his church and to preach from the pulpit what I just said, that he would be thrown out of the pulpit. He won't tolerate that. He says we can all disagree. No, we can't disagree. You won't even allow us to disagree because you won't invite us to preach in your own pulpit. <laughs> so you're a hypocrite. You say we should be tolerant and open-minded on different views, but you don't practice that. You say it like a slick salesman, like a corrupt, dirty, sleazy salesman. That's the way you say it, but you don't act that way. You act in ways that are steering the ship in the wrong direction. That's what you're doing, Tim Keller. Yes. Yes. I think this kind of adds on uh, a little bit to that, the question, taking uh, into consideration chapter 10 that we looked at and how it's obviously a historical narrative. It, there's no way you could read it otherwise. Why, besides the underlying motive of just sinfulness, do liberal scholars want to take something so obviously historical and say it's not, when they're willing to take, you know, a piece of rock they find in some mud that has some scratches on it and read it and say, oh, that's literal. So, besides, is there anything besides the underlying motive of sin, the reason they would take this and and want to twist it around and say, well, we can't trust the business historical. Yes, this is obviously historical, and the question is, besides the motive of sin, and often it's underlying and it's subtle, it's unexpressed, in addition to that, is there something else that would cause them to take something that looks so obviously literal and make it figurative and make it unhistorical and mythological? Um, it depends on what you mean by sin. If you By sin, you mean moral sin, ethical sin, um, there may be that, and that is often a reason. But if you also mean um, they think that they are smart, they think that they are brilliant, they're sophisticated in their thinking, and what they think is better than what the Bible says, then I would call that sin too, not in a moral sense, but more in the intellectual, idolatrous sense, that they think their mind and their wisdom is superior to the wisdom of God. Yeah. And in speaking to that, I think the question may not be that because they'll take other historical documents and they'll read it exactly how the, the, the text reads. Yes. And they'll accept it. You know, they're try not trying to come up with something fancy to make themselves look smart or to find something hidden inside of it. But they'll do that with Scripture. Yes. So, so in that context. Yes. So in that context, that shows their true colors, that they're not being consistent. They will take the Bible as figurative and mythological, but when they read other historical texts, even religious texts, they take them at face value. Because those religious texts allow them to think and to live in the way that they want, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible expects faith and obedience. Yeah. So, so it, all, it usually does always boil down to, I don't want to be held accountable before God. Yes. Okay, so it always boils down to, I don't want to be held accountable before God. Yes. They don't want to submit to Him. There's probably some philosophers whose name won't come to mind right now, but one of them had a philosophy of meaninglessness. And he confessed, he said, uh, he said, I wanted everything to be meaningless, 
because I wanted freedom to do certain things, especially with regard to women. So he, he confessed his motive. Yes. No, I can't. I can't think of the. I think the name may be in a minute. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, flat out said it. Uh, many many times you will have them eventually say that I wanted to have another system, another philosophy, another belief, because I wanted to live the way I wanted to live. And it often, when it's the men, it often has to do with sex. Yes. He, they, they wanted to pursue their sexual impulses and, and lust the way that they wanted, and they didn't want any inhibitions and parameters to guide them in that. And the Bible does give that. So they present themselves as being very fair-minded and objective, but really they have these underlying motives that drive everything that, they, that they're doing. Yes. Yeah, they present themselves as objective and fair-minded when actually they have underlying motives. They want to live according to their sin. Yes. And with men, it's often sexual sin. So in the case with what you were drawing with Christ and Adam, the connection... I mean, we, we have to have a real Christ who is a sacrifice for sin, but it, he can't come from a mythological source. There has to be... So, so at what point is the Bible myth, and then does it turn into actual history? Mm -hmm. right? But if, if, So those two things are so connected that you can't have Adam as a myth and then Christ as a reality. If Adam's a myth, then it underlines it undermines Christ. Yes. So to be consistent, if we were objective and logical and honest with ourselves, how can we, at, and at what point would we have to say, this part of the Bible about Adam or Christ is figurative or mythological and this other part is real? You have to play games with your own mind, yeah. right? And who plays games with their own mind? But the insane the insane, those who are beside themselves, the lunatics. And that's what sin does, going back to sin again. When we want a certain sin, we let that sin be our God. We pursue it so much that we let everything else that might prevent us from accomplishing that sin, we make that go, go to the sideline, and we can't see clearly. We can't see straight. We can't think straight because of that sin. So sin makes us insane. Therefore, there is no logic to it. It's all scatterbrained thinking. In the name of being sophisticated, in the name of being scholarly, in the name of being erudite, in the name of being prolific in writing, in the name of all that, showing brilliance, really, it's not. It's stupidity. It's insanity. It's sin. Basically, that's it. Sin. Yes, yes, and then that means that at that point, God turns, turns them over to a reprobate mind, citing Romans 1, 24, 26. Yes. But can we also connect that to verse 8, Romans 1, 18, going from there, they uh, disavow God being God and make themselves their own God, and because of that, he, he uh, pronounces judgment on them. Yes, yes. And because of Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Therefore, you're saying, because they do this, God punishes them with this reprobate mind. He punishes them with this depravity that's an inflexible, stubborn depravity. Right. Yeah. And can we also connect that with Proverbs chapter 8? in the latter part of it where uh, the writer of Proverbs makes this elaborate narrative about, about the wonderful counsel of God and, and wisdom and, and then pronounces a curse upon them that if they, they uh, sin against the wisdom of God that they are really sinning against their own soul and, uh, and loving death. Yes, and in Proverbs 8, at the end it says, uh, 8.35, For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who sins against me 
injures himself, all those who hate me love death. Yeah, that's the outcome, is if we continue to hate God and sin against God, we're actually injuring ourselves and we love death. We hate him and we love death. Uh, the question I have in verse 21 said to Shem also the father of all the children of Israel, the elder brother of Japheth. But you said it's actually Japheth the elder. Yes. So the order is Japheth plus Shem and Ham? Yes, that's what I think. And if you check that order in verse 21, Genesis 10, 21, instead of the NASB, the older brother of Japheth, I think that it's more likely the brother of Japheth, the elder. And if we take the syntax or the word order of the Hebrew, it would be the brother of Japheth, the elder. That's the way it reads more in Hebrew. So that's why I prefer that. Um... But also, remember that when Noah was 500 years old, he started to have children, right? Yeah. And it says um, that Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshah two years after the flood. Um, So he started to have children after the flood. In that expression that he had, it's in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 32. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, Why is it that order? I think it's that, um, it's right there in chapter 5, verse 32, that he had these three sons when he was 500 years old. It doesn't say they were all born in the same year or that they were triplets or whatever, but that's when he began to have them as. So if Shem um, is there, I think the reading of chapter 10, verse 21, is probably Japheth, Shem, and then Ham. And like I said, check your footnotes, even in your English Bibles, and you'll see that they have that alternate reading. So you're saying that um, 120 years before, is it 120 years before the flood? Or 100? 120 before the flood, yes. That Noah began to have children. Yes. But Shem was only 100 years old when he began to have kids after the flood. Yes. So that, that indicates that, since we know Ham's the youngest, Japheth was something like 22 Years older than he, he might have been older, yes. If you connect the dots. If you connect the dots. But Shem is listed first because he's exalted into the superior position. Probably because he's in the superior position, yes. As a descendant. Yes, as a What's that? Probably for the one-time military is... Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. And so you're saying the middle child, Shem, is placed first. Okay. Now, this is... um, uh, There's something called primogenitor. That is that what God does, He shows very clearly in the book of Genesis, but it's throughout Scripture, that the firstborn... Though he may have a physical inheritance that is double the rest of the sons, which is the case in the Bible, the firstborn might have double the inheritance as the rest of the sons, yet God is showing with each example, example after example, that just because of the firstborn son being there and having that kind of prominence, it is no guarantee, there's no certainty that that firstborn is spiritually right before God. There's no guarantee that the firstborn, though he has the physical blessings, it doesn't guarantee that he is the right one spiritually in the sight of God. Examples in the book of Genesis. Cain was born before Abel, right? Cain before Abel. Ishmael was born before Isaac, right? 
And in the case of Jacob's 12 sons, Reuben was the firstborn, but Christ comes through Judah, Judah correct? And this is, this is the way it is throughout the, the rest of the Bible. So God's showing that to say it depends on his choice, not on birth order. Canaan is uh, a son of Ham. Chapter 10, verse 6. Canaan is a son of Ham in 10.6, but also in 9.22 it says it. And Ham, the father of Canaan. What does it mean that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem? I think it has to do with uh, spiritual truth that Japheth represents all the rest of the nations, those who are not descendants of Shem, of the rest of the nations, and they will take refuge in the Christ who will be born as a descendant of Shem. For example, Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66, 18 18 to 21 is a prophecy. 18 to 21. Isaiah 66, 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Rosh, Tubal, and Javan to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in the clean vessel to the house of the Lord. I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. A prophecy of redemption among the peoples of the earth. Yeah, that's what it is. And also, remember uh, when we cited that Shiloh, when Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. A phrase similar to that is in Romans. A phrase similar to that is in Romans Romans 1, 5 says, through whom, Romans 1, 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. The obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. I think that's an allusion to Genesis 49, 10. And this, as we read about Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? That's the same thing. Genesis 12, 3, 22, uh, You mentioned that these passages like this uh, show that we all have a common source. We all, so that there's not one group of people that's superior to another group of people. We're all created in the image of God. Could you talk then about the distinction among cultures that just because all people are created in the image of God doesn't mean that all cultures or societies are equally moral or equally just. That Can there be a culture that's superior or better in the sense that it's more moral and just than another culture? Does that make sense? Okay, if we all come from one family, from the family of Noah, and we're all equal, we all possess the image of God, we're all redeemable people does that necessarily mean that every culture is equal? That is, the values and the practices of every culture, are they the same, on the same level? And the answer to that is no. We know that to be the case in the Bible itself, because God 
commanded Israel to destroy the land of Canaan, all the Canaanites. Why? Because they had degenerated so much, the Canaanites had degenerated so much, it was time for them to be punished. It was time for them. Because their values, based on two major sources. One, we all have natural law, meaning we all have a conscience. A conscience in our hearts, this is Romans 2, 2, 14 to 16, that we all have a conscience in our hearts, and our thoughts know this. We know this, that there is a difference between I, uh, my possessions of things and someone else's possessions. We know that my shirt belongs to me and his shirt belongs to him. So I can't go over to him and just tear off his shirt and walk away. I can't go into his house and steal his shirts so that I can wear his shirts. Right? We understand this is natural law. Not only that, but also idolatry. How can we call a block of wood a god? Unless we have so brainwashed ourselves or somebody has so brainwashed us that we look at a block of wood, a piece of wood, even if it's carved in a, in a very beautiful way, and say that that's a god, that that's actually superior to me and able to answer my prayers? How can we do that? Yeah. that so natural law, if we lived according to what our conscience tells us, we would know the difference between these kinds of things. So this natural law is in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments embody this. But now in the Ten Commandments, it's written in stone, right? It's written down. And with the Bible, the whole Bible, we have God's words written on pages, right? When we have them written on pages, now we have the written law, or we have special law, or the special revelation. We know generally, because of our conscience, the difference between right and wrong to some extent. But then from the Bible, we know specifically, through special revelation, the moral law of God written down. Then, to the extent that cultures live to the standard of natural law and biblical law, then those cultures are better than other cultures. Correct? Sure. So, let's use another example. Let's say that there's a culture that prohibits adultery, that teaches against it, and has laws against it, and has more of a constraint, more of a restraint on the, the whims and the lusts of men and women, so that there's more control on the, that one sin, the sin of adultery. Let's just, let's just say that there is a culture, and there are some cultures like that. But let's say there are other cultures that have very little laws or no laws on that, and everyone is able to do whatever is right in his own eyes on that sin. So in reference to that sin, isn't one culture better than the other culture? Because the one culture is either on natural law or moral law or both biblical and natural law. They're living up to that to some degree, but this other culture wants nothing to do with it. And so they're loose they're loose all over the place on that. So there is a difference, is there not, between one culture and another. We could do that on any number of sins and crimes. So the aggregate, or on the whole, there will be some cultures that are better in some ways than other cultures, so adopt the better, biblically speaking. Adopt the better and pursue that. And in that regard, we have to be very discerning. Discerning as to what the Bible teaches and discerning what is good in one culture above another. Like in an, another example might be family values or the desire to raise a family and love a family. There are certain cultures that promote that more than other cultures. So those that do, that's a good part of their culture. Those that don't, that's a bad part of the, that culture. So you often will hear, especially when it uh, comes to debates about like immigration and stuff, Christians will cite passages like this, common ancestry, image of God, to argue that we should welcome all people in. But then there's not at the same time 
a discerning or an evaluation of the cultures from which they're coming and what they value and importing those things into the society and what, what it's going to do. So right. should, that should be a factor as well, shouldn't it? Yes, yes. It should be a factor when other peoples, when they immigrate to one country, <clears throat> one's country, like our country in the United States, that you just can't let them come and bring all of their practices into the country. That can't be possible. It should not be possible. Um, for example, in one culture um, or, or in one religion, let's say in the religion of Islam, in the religion of Islam, many of them believe in female genital mutilation. They mutilate the genitals of little girls. They do that purposely because they say that will neutralize or, and destroy their sexual desires and then when they're old enough, they won't commit adultery. That's what they say. So should we practice in here in the United States female genital mutilation? No, that's not a virtue. What is that? There's no biblical precedent for anything like that. In, fa in, fa yeah, in fact, it's child abuse. And so that, that, that's wrong. Okay. Um, let's also think of, um, let's say, in, in Islam, to use another example, in Islam, they believe that homosexuality or sodomy is permitted in certain contexts. I know that there's a lot of propaganda these days that they don't believe in it and they, they kill homosexuals and stuff, but that's not true. In certain contexts, they actually believe in homosexuality. Muhammad himself believed in it, and he taught it, that in certain contexts, it's okay to practice it. So, should we bring that into the United States also? No. Or, let's say, with Islam... They believe that all unbelievers ought to be subjugated and practice the laws of Islam. All the laws of Islam are to be practiced by those who don't believe in Islam. They should either convert, and that deals with it right there, or if they don't convert, they need to be subjugated. That is, they need to follow certain Islamic laws, they need to... Uh, not have preferences for jobs. They need to be taxed higher than the average, uh, the average Muslim is taxed. Um, then if they resist, or if a Muslim converts and goes out of Islam into Christianity or some other religion, then that ex-Muslim should be executed. You can go on and on with things like that. They have those in their beliefs, in their history for 1,400 years. None of this is an exaggeration. It's all right there. It's all there. That's what they believe. So if they believe those kinds of things, how can they come into a country, any country, whether it's a Hindu country, a Buddhist country, uh, even a communist country, and, or a Christian country, nominally Christian, because most of us, if we go to a place of worship, it's to a church, we don't go to a Hindu temple, right? right. So in that sense, we're generally, <clears throat> nominally, a Christian country. Not in reality, but in that artificial sense. So, in that way, how can they come here and us all live peacefully? Because they don't want to live peacefully. So, we have to examine what they believe and expect that they need to give up certain beliefs and practices if they're going to come to our country. We could say that about other religions too. So that is not an issue of, uh, I've heard some say that if you want that type of discernment, then you're just putting all your hope in this world and you don't care about the kingdom of God, that we're citizens of heaven and we shouldn't be so concerned about this present world. But it seems that it would be better to live in a nominally Christian country than to live in a Muslim country. Okay, some, some objectors will say, if we believe this, what I just said, then we're putting all of our hope in this world. 
Well, actually, they like to say that sometimes. They like to say that because they want their own voice heard and they want us to keep quiet. And their voice is, let anybody and everybody come. It doesn't matter. Let's have chaos and misery, drugs and everything else. That's what they believe. Okay? So that's what one of the, their tactics. They try to silence us by saying, you just love this world. Yeah, right. Like the one who accuses us of loving the world lives for heaven. If you examine our accusers, they don't live for heaven. They live for the world too. In, in, in hypocrisy, okay? They live for the world. But number two, it's disobeying the Bible. Yep. The Bible says, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He urges us to pray for kings and all who are in authority. For what purpose? He says in verse 2, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. He does not say, in order that we and pagans and people of any other religion and atheists may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Right. We have to pray even for pagan kings, unbelieving kings, this is in the time of the Roman Empire, right? right? The emperor was not a Christian, not in the first century, right? He didn't even claim it. So he was not a Christian, but we ought to pray for kings so that they have decrees, they have laws, they have justice that benefits us that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. For us to be able to live in peace, worshiping our God. And what is a part of worshiping our God? Verses 3 to 7 is evangelism. But what if we have Muslim laws? What if we have Hindu laws? What if we have Buddhist laws? What if we have communist laws right. that prohibit us from evangelizing and living in peace? Living in our own houses, having jobs, stable jobs to raise our families? What if we live in those environments and they prohibit us? We're supposed to pray that they would stop prohibiting us. So the goal is always the benefit of the Christian church. For what reason? For godliness and evangelism. They say, well, don't you care about Muslims? If they're here in your neighborhood, then you can evangelize them. Yeah, right. They don't really want to do that. They don't do that themselves. Why don't we... Stop the borders for them, uh, against them and go to their countries and evangelize them over there. That would be better. So why don't they go over there and do it? Yes, and why don't they? Yes, yeah. Why don't the detractors, the objectors, actually also go over there and do it? They don't do it. It's all a sham. Really, it's all a sham. They don't care about evangelism. They don't preach the true gospel. And they don't want to live a, a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity because they work against that even in our own country. Right. They work against all of that. And on. this is a spiritual, eternal reason to pray that way. Even for pagans, unbelievers, to have laws that benefit the Christian church. Yes? Do you think there's a, a connection there with uh, Jeremiah 29, 4-7? Yes. Would you like to read it? Yes, sir. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce, 
take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. To say, we should be concerned about the, the good of the, of the city in which we live, the good of the place in which we live, um, and, and to live uh, as much as we know the Bible tells us how to live in the image of God, we should promote that amongst everybody with whom we live. Yes. And not, and not say to each his own. Correct. Okay, so Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. When they went into exile, they were supposed to pray and act in ways that would help the people wherever they lived. And what would that mean? Preaching the truth to them. Explaining the gospel to them. That's what it means. That's what we should do too. Not live according to the way they live, or even to say to each his own, uh, coexist as though that could happen. It's not going to happen. Nope. Um, so we are to promote the truth wherever we are, whether it's our own country or we're in a foreign country. Promote the truth. Preach the truth. All right, time for another question. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word is so clear, so relevant, so important. We thank you that you've shown us these truths. We pray now that we'll be more convinced of them, that we'll preach and teach them, and we'll live accordingly. Lord, help us not to be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. May we not say, Lord, Lord, and do not do what you say. Help us, Lord, to act and practice these truths and to be more sure in our faith, to know and understand that this is the word of God. May we also, Lord, make inroads with the people we encounter, our loved ones, our family, uh, wherever we go, even strangers at school, at work, when we preach the gospel, help us to preach it with this confidence, knowing what your word says, and would you bring salvation to the lost. Thank you again for this time, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.